My name is Harrison Wheeler, and this is Technically Speaking. This show is produced in collaboration with Studio Pod Media. For information on our episodes, articles, and professional community, head to technicallyspeakinghw.com today. Let's get into the details of today's show. In this episode of Technically Speaking, the experienced designer at NWEA and my clubhouse friend, Chris Toms, joins the show to unravel the events that led him into the creative business after dedicating his life to soccer coaching. We touch upon the value of transferable skills and creating safe spaces to reframe the conversations inside a work environment. Plus, he shares how he got in touch with the children and communities that he's designing for and how that is now a part of his purpose. Hey, everyone. My name is Harrison Wheeler, and welcome to another episode of Technically Speaking. Today, I have Chris Toms, Experienced Design Lead. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. I'm honored to have you on the show. Uh, Chris and I obviously probably been following each other on Twitter before, but we got pretty close in the clubhouse sphere. And this is like a year ago. It's crazy how you can almost segment out different parts of the pandemic. We were in the clubhouse phase of the pandemic. And since then, we've always sort of kept in touch. And, and Chris has always been extremely vocal out on these internet streets. How are you doing? Like, what's good with you? How's the Portland area? Portland's good. It's much the same as it was before the pandemic in terms of like the design sphere, like still, you know, pretty white, but I mean, not pretty white, extremely white. It's, it's mostly, mostly white folks up here. I mean, that is just the way it is. There's a lot of historical reasons for that that I won't get into here, but if you ever want to find out about it, just, just look up Portland redlining. It'll tell you a lot about why there's very few black people in positions of power or ownership, even land ownership. So, um, and we all know that land ownership is a track to prosperity, but also to better outcomes, better educational outcomes. So Portland had a very specific type of that. That is the reason why it is the way it is today. But I think there's been in Portland, for the most part, I feel like there's been acceptance that history did in fact happen. And then movement towards change. I wouldn't say that things have changed. I'd say people are more willing to hire black design talent, but the larger industry woes of gatekeeping and, and other sort of white supremacist type uh, ideas and functions have keep that field largely white. And that is, that's just, so that, so they're, they're, they're fighting for the, the same, I don't know, however many black UX designers there are in the United States. It's not, it's not very many. Everybody's fighting over the same group of folks. So, yeah. How's that been for you though? For me personally, I made a decision to stick with the company that I was in, even though there's massive opportunity for transplanting and going someplace else, like going someplace bigger, uh, maybe getting paid more money, likely getting paid more money. I have I have a problem in front of me that is very much worth solving. And it's a problem that's kind of unique to the company that I work in. And I would be remiss if I left without solving that problem because it affects future generations, uh, black and brown children, for as long as we have an educational system. <laughs> so it's a very difficult problem, but it's a problem that I'm committed to solving. 
Chris, what is the problem? You've been you've been so high level. What is the problem? So I work for an educational assessment company. So the problem is the, the problems that there are with all educational assessment, that it disproportionately harms black and brown children. I happen to work at a company that makes that and is committed to improving it. And so because they're committed to improving it, I, I continue to work here. And the company is called NWEA. But these, these problems are, are common in the educational assessment industry, in the educational industry in general. You have this at all levels. Uh, you have this at as low levels as elementary school and as high levels as PhD programs. What we consider to be excellence oftentimes is rooted in cultural norms. Mm-hmm. And those cultural norms tend not to serve black and brown folks which is a really nice way of saying that there's some systemic racism involved in that, and which I think is one of the most misunderstood terms uh, on the planet at this point. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's about preferences. That's sort of like your take on it. It's about the preferences side of things. There's, there's, there's a lot more to that, but I think the way it shows up in spaces that we exist in professionally, it shows up in the form of preference, preferring one portfolio to another, preferring one name over another, this was kind of getting into gatekeeping. Those things sort of show up in folks' preferences. Those things aren't even necessarily evil. For the most part, preferences are benign, except for that when you're in power, your preferences have the power to choose and decide a path or a future for someone. So I think if I had gone into UX through the traditional channels, I would not have arrived where I have uh, in the same at the, at the same speed. But because I came in kind of sideways, and from like another industry and like sort of sight unseen, uh, like there's a lot of, I had a lot of skill sets that I had developed in the other, my other path of employment, which was uh, sport. I was a professional soccer coach, not for a professional team, but that was like professionally my job. I did work with some professional, <laughs> I did get paid for it. And I, I did work with some professional academies like the Portland Timbers and some academies over in Thailand and Japan. Um, I was very, super blessed to, to travel and be able to do that uh, as a primary source of income. But I have a family and uh, coaching really didn't, wasn't really getting me for, for very similar reasons, actually, to what I face in design. It, it wasn't really going to be something that I could do at a high level because we're simply, uh, I, don't, I don't see black coaches in particularly U.S. soccer or any soccer pit or preferred. It's just, there's very obvious preference. And even in a game like soccer, where there are so many African and black and brown athletes who are excellent, absolutely excellent. The preference for coaching and coaching staffs is overwhelmingly white, like shockingly so. When you consider the makeup of the players of some of these clubs and you consider, then you see the coaching staff, it's, there's a real disconnect there, but it's about, again, preference. So I see some, I see a lot of that in the design industry. Just the, the ground floor for design is much higher than it is for coaching soccer in terms of salary and compensation. Design was a step up for me in terms of wages, <laughs> um, but it was also a step down in terms, at least in terms of talent recognition. Black athletes, just brown describe, athletes. Yeah, describe that. Yeah. So black and brown athletes and sport are, are, are readily identified and given opportunities to perform. That is a thing that happens. They are not readily identified and given opportunities to coach. But to perform, that is as open and, <laughs> and, as, open and as clean. There's many, many opportunities for athletes to play, not to coach, not to... Ownership is another 
animal, but not to coach, not to be in charge, not to dictate and determine who gets picked. So, but they are picked. And so I think that is, I think that in, in terms of that, design industry is well behind in terms of picking folks who are diverse. For lack of a better way to describe it, I could tell you what a designer looks like because it's a Steve, it's Steve Jobs in a picture with glasses and a turtleneck. That's just what, I mean, I'm, I'm not, and I, I'm not hating on Steve Jobs or anybody in that way. I'm not hating on Apple. I'm just saying the image of what a designer is, is a white male specifically. Very intelligent, incredibly talented. Yeah. It's like the three things, Dieter Ram, Steve Jobs, and uh, Johnny yep. Ive. All of who I have crazy levels of respect for. Of course. Total respect. Like we're talking real trendsetters, ground, groundbreaking, amazing founders. But what all of them had was support, right? They all got that support and in, in the form of preference. And ultimately, when it comes to tech companies being funded or founded, there's a lot of preference involved with who we choose to pick, who is chosen. It's I've only heard, and this is, this is, I'm dating, I'm like, this is five years back. I've only heard of one black tech, per, like tech founder, uh, a guy named Russell Ladson, you might know him. He was the only person I've ever seen get funding. He got funding for an app called Drop. Uh, like this is like five years ago, but that money, the, the money that he got for that app didn't come from America. He got funded by a Chinese company. So he got, um, he got a million dollars, which was a big chunk of change. And that's not, that's nothing to sneeze at, right? He got, and it was, and he had a really good program. It's the first VR internet browser, right? But he wasn't funded by American VC. He was funded by Chinese VC, right? And I just, I just think that says so, it speaks so loudly to this idea about preference. It's not that there's no black tech founders. It's that they don't get support. And so I, I think what people say is like, oh, there are none. Or there are no black UX designers. Well, you can't find them, right? That's different. That's different than there not being any. And you have to make an effort to headhunt and find these people because, again, with the preference, the channels that are designed like LinkedIn, you know, let, let's talk about LinkedIn. I, I love LinkedIn, but it's not really an experience that it's catered to elite business professionals who overwhelmingly are white. And that's exactly, and I get it. I totally get how that works and why that happens. Um, it makes sense. But a knock-on effect of that is it may not cater to the needs of those who come from different backgrounds than that. Right. And to be fair, I mean, this is, we're obviously talking about LinkedIn, but for most companies to even really kind of get off the ground, they go after a certain preference, right? And that's really kind of rooted in a lot of the, what goes to market, who it's marketed to, who VCs invest in, right? So yep. you see that early on through education, through how businesses are modeled, through sort of how companies pitch themselves, right? It's rooted deeply in the system. Yeah, 100%. So what I want to do, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, maybe give folks a brief introduction about yourself. We learned about some of the different areas you kind of got involved in, but tell me, how does the Chris Toms of today come into being? I mean, that's a long story. Uh, it starts with a nervous breakdown. <laughs> if that makes, I mean, men, we, we can talk about mental health because it's it's important, and I really encourage people to deal with their mental health and to to prioritize it. But essentially, I failed to become the thing that I wanted to be, which was a professional soccer coach at, at like a you know high ranking European club, which I mean is a pipe dream for an African American kid 
playing soccer in the United States. I mean, that's just not, that's, I mean, I don't know how long it'll be till we see that, but it, I think it'll be a while or it couldn't be, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be positive. It could be very soon. I know several really talented young black coaches who are UEFA trained and certified who could definitely coach in Europe. Shout out to Gio Monroe. But that was my, my dream. And I was unable to achieve it. As far as I got was coaching college in the United States. And I figured out that that was so not what I wanted. It was not what I wanted at all, but I felt like I had nowhere else to go. And kind of the weight of my own expectations and the weight of maybe others' expectations. I've never really been someone who cares too much about what people think. I mean, you can tell by the way I say things that I don't really care that much. But I had, I felt like there were outside expectations of me that I wasn't meeting. There, I definitely had a few mentors in my life who were very successful, who were looking at the choices I was making and saying, Chris, this is, this is not how you become successful. You need to figure out what you're doing. And so that all kind of culminated with, you know, as it always does in your thirties, figuring out some things about your childhood and that special blend of, of spices, uh, as what I'll call it. Really, cul- <laughs> really culminated in me really having like a like what could only be classified as a nervous breakdown. I had panic attacks and all this stuff, and I I never been I I never really been nervous before, let alone have panic attacks. So I didn't really know what I was experiencing. My wife really helped me out through that time and really got me got me some help and started seeing a therapist. And at the same time that that happened, I quit coaching. Actually, I was invited not to work as a coach at a college anymore. So I was fired. So I just want you guys to understand that that is, that is a real thing that happens to people, even talented people. And so I was in that moment, one of my mentors, he owned a media company and he had already hired me to work during the off season because I just, I really was struggling to survive from like a money standpoint. My wife always worked, you know, we're, we're not like, we're not like on the streets or anything like that, but it wasn't enough to push us forward to purchase a home, to pay for college for right. kids. You know, it was crunch time. I mean, it was really crunch time. And so um, so he hired me to work doing social media. And first day I started work, I came in there and he was he was like, okay, we have all this content. And he handed me a hard drive that was supposedly full of content. And then I get into this hard drive. <laughs> it was a 10 megabyte hard drive with three files. No, it was a terabyte. And it had like all these files. And I was looking at these, I was like, oh, okay, what images do we have? I was like, oh, sweet. Like, we got images? And then I started looking at all the images, and they're uh, 30 by 30, 30 pixels by 30 oh, pixels. Oh, no. Everything was a 30 by 30 pixel, right? Like, there was one, uh, I think it was like 600 by 600. There was one potentially, if you were desperate, postable photo. And so I was like, actually, you guys don't have any content, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> and so what ended up happening <laughs> was I, um, you know, I had studied photography and my grandmother and grandfather were both, my grandfather on my, my dad's side was a, a sign maker. So that's an old school graphic designer. And my grandmother was an artist for the U.S. Air Force. So like all those like beautiful pictures of jet fighters and all that, like missiles and all, she drew all that stuff. She would draw like the idealized wow. Wait, like she's an amazing artist. Like I don't have any of her artwork up in our new house yet. I just have this nasty. We need to, that we need to see it though. That sounds yeah. Amazing. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna bring out. I'm gonna I'm gonna show it. But she was an amazingly talented artist, and she taught me art from a really young age. And I just mm. never really used it. <laughs> like I like right. I just never really used it. And additionally, I had a good friend, a guy named Lloyd Bagtas, who worked who used to work at Amazon Alexa. 
he used to kick me. Well, this is before he worked there. This is back in the days where you could bootleg like Photoshop and Illustrator. He used to kick me these bootleg <laughs> copies of Photoshop yeah. and Illustrator. And I was, I, I was remember those first, days. Yep. And for a time, you know, I was, you know, playing soccer in Europe. I, you know, I was okay. I was a bang average soccer player is how my friends in England would say it. But I was over there and I had free time. And so in my free time, I would just mess around with Photoshop and Illustrator. And I didn't know that was like a whole skill set. I didn't know that people go to school to get good at that. Like I had no, I was just messing around. And so, but you know, people pay, pay like $10,000 for the whole creative suite, which was insane. <laughs> they certainly do. And it's like, I didn't, I had no, <laughs> I had no understanding of what I was playing with. No understanding at all. I was just messing around. I was like, oh, I'm going to get this picture and I'm going to do this to it. Oh, can I make it stretch and have this thing? Yeah, sure. I'll do that. And yeah. just playing around with it. And then, um, it all came to bear when I got this job working for my uh, my mentor, a guy named Ray DiCarlo. He was like, okay, well, we need to make content. And so he handed me a camera and I got to work. So I didn't know what I was doing. So I'm an athlete like at heart. So I just know to work hard. So I would went out every day for two and a half years and shot photography and edited photos and made ads and made content and looked at analytics and did all this stuff. I did that day in and day out. I probably took, I took upwards of, you know, 60 or 70,000 photos in a two year period. Wow. So by the end of it, I was actually decent or pretty good at photography. I was really good yeah. at making graphics, like unbelievably fast at it. And then I was really good at doing typography and other sorts of things. And I didn't know how much value that had until I started getting offered jobs based on the things that I was doing in social media. And so that culminated in an offer to work for NWEA as a UX researcher, which was based on my history as a scout uh, working for soccer clubs because I've done UX research. It's just scouting. It's actually much harder because <laughs> you have no time and you need to put together like videos and clips and illustrated and illustrations, training plans, all this stuff. You have, to, you have to ID who the most important and effective player is for the other team. There's all this analysis, breakdown of qualitative research, like things like how many touches a player has. If you restrict this player's touches, they'll be less effective. Here's how you do it. Like there's super, it's, it's incredibly detailed. People don't understand how detailed scouting is. It's a crazy hard job. It's terrible paying. It's awful pay, but it's got super high pressure because there's a lot of prestige in being associated with a team as a scout. And so that's what I had been doing for years. I'd done that for years. And so that's actually what the recruiter saw. He's like, no, this guy can do UX research. And so when they brought me in, they, they, they counted all of my experience for UX research and scouting, right? And so I was like, I was like, are we counting my soccer scouting experience as UX research experience? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, then I'll crush this. I know how to do this. I've done this for years. Like, this is not hard. Go to the people, go see what the people are doing, bring a video camera, record everything that happens, take notes, write an analysis, get it out ASAP because you don't have time because we have a match, you know, in a week. And they were giving me deadlines like six weeks out. <laughs> and I was kind of like, six weeks? Oh, okay. Like, <laughs> you got five you know, weeks like, to chill. <laughs> you got five. I was like, I was like that basically. <laughs> so I did a lot of UX research in a really short span of time. I actually did way more than what they expected in the first, in my first two months in that position. 
I did probably 10 research studies. And I didn't know how unusual that was until I found out how many research studies we did in the previous year combined, which was 13. So we'd done 10. And before that, we had done 13. And so it wasn't, it wasn't a knock on the person who was there before. They had different constraints. I didn't have any time. And so I just, I think that's the thing about sports is you just find a way. Yeah. What's up, everybody? It's Harrison again. I'm sure if you haven't heard by now, I just released the Technically Speaking Product Design Glossary. It's 118 need-to-know terms centered around the ins and out of user experience design. The best part about it is that it's a free download. Head on over to technicallyspeakinghw.com or our Instagram for more information. I think honestly, what I find very significant about that story and shout out to everybody out there who recognizes that they have transferable skills, that you had a company that recognized it. Because I think a lot of times, and it's really difficult when you're switching industries, right? It's, I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of this. Like, you know, I love folks that are coming from different industries because they've worked in a different capacity. They've done things that they can transfer over. And they're a lot more intuitive when recognizing a lot of these things, similar to like, like what you're describing. But I always kind of look at that where what happens if you're at a company that doesn't recognize that, right? And there's so many folks that kind of go through a bit of imposter syndrome when it's like, no, you've been doing this for a very long time. And so do you have any advice for anybody that's kind of going through something like that? Something I learned in my first role out of sport was analysis and kind of looking at what the things are that were being done. So what is happening, right? And I don't care what the label is at the top of that. I just need to know what is happening. And I started to look at my career in the same way. Okay, what is happening? Oh, I'm going and talking and, and I have to go and get information. So I have to go and talk to people who are close to the information and get that information. So I have to do investigation. That's UX research. I looked at what UX research is, <laughs> which essentially tells you to go and do the same thing. But I was like, I was like, wait, so that's the same. And so then I just kind of went down the list of what I did in my process and I looked for the gaps. I didn't find many. It was scary. I didn't really find many. I have to write reports. I have to put together PowerPoints. I had to do all of that stuff. In my previous role, I had to send people decks about teams slide by slide with diagrams and images of what was happening. I have to do that same thing in UX research. It's just called UX research. I could easily call it scouting because to me, the functions of it are the same. And so, and maybe that's an oversimplification and probably I'm making every sort of professional UX researcher in the field really angry. Hopefully not. But if I do, feel free to come talk to me. I'm happy to have a conversation about why I don't know what I'm talking about. But I think once you look at what your skills are in an analytical way, and then you compare them to the skills necessary, it should give you confidence. And sometimes we just name things differently, right? Like we, like we name things differently. Like we call it investigation, but you guys call it qualitative interviews, <laughs> right? Like it's like it, there, you have to figure out, like if, it, if you see something that says, oh, qualitative interview, and you're like, well, I did investigation before. Can I go look up what an example of that thing is so I, I know for sure how much of it applies? You just have to be really curious. I'm endlessly curious. I feel like that's maybe my superpower is I ask so I ask a lot of questions. Um, I ask questions as statements as well. 
<laughs> maybe too often. <laughs> I think there's people at my company that are like, Chris, that's really annoying. But yeah, I think that's kind of how I, I looked at it. And I didn't really gain that confidence in the imp- imposter syndrome piece until actually people were telling me I was good at UX research. Then I got really nervous. I was like, well, you know, am I like, you know, like, am I really a UX researcher? It's like, bro, you like have the title, you're actively doing it, you're putting out reports, you're, you're doing research, like, what are you talking about? You know, was there sort of a bit more of a responsibility that you felt that you had to have once people started saying you were good at it? Yeah, it was like, do I want to be good at this? <laughs> is this you really what be I good at this? Yeah, is this, is this really what I want to be doing? Right. That was the second question, because I had to be a UX researcher at my company. I had to put down design and that and I I never really put it down. Like I was always working in design on the side and doing those things and and developing my skill sets there. But like to take that role, which was the right role for my family at that time, like I was making startup money and I really needed to step up. It was time I put that down and I was like, well, I know that being a UX researcher is a huge part of being a really talented and competent UX designer. And UX designers, good ones, have to be good at UX research. And so I was like, this is probably okay, but I don't want to be doing this forever. Like, I don't want to get stuck here because I have design stuff that I'm literally, it's screaming out for me to do it, like internally. (laughs) And so I was very fortunate that I was given opportunities to design. Some of that design was considered to be very professional work. And I received a title change as a result of that. And then that title change turned into a promotion to design lead. Amazing. So we know what happened. You chose the design path. So I want to ask you a little bit, like, how do you approach design? Like, are there any sort of like core principles that you sort of look at the work that you're doing? Because, you know, as you mentioned before, the work that you're doing has a huge impact on the lives of folks that are using your tools. And so how do you ensure that you're being, you know, creating equitable outcomes for those folks? I attempt at every chance I get, I attempt to engage in co-design as much as possible. I go to the people. That is the thing about me is I don't really want my questions about students being answered by product managers who don't know any students or who haven't seen poor black students. That was one of the, the big pieces of work that I did at my company is I, I went to poor and disenfranchised areas and I did the research there. I started there and that was incredibly powerful work. I think some folks have said that that work was landmark for our company and actually changed our perspective on a lot of things. And I credit all of that to the students trusting me to tell their stories and the teachers, the black teachers that I met in those areas trusting me to tell their stories. And I'm endlessly grateful for that. I mean, that's, it's super humbling, but it's also a responsibility because I see myself, I saw myself in the kids that I went and work with. And that was, that was rough. It was, it was rough going to areas where education or not, maybe kids aren't getting out of middle school alive, you know, and seeing, seeing how your product is used in those circumstances. I wonder what we'd learn about our products if we went to the places that desperately need them to work to find out if they did, right? I wonder what we'd design if we did that. I wonder what, what I wonder what sort of empathy we've developed, what sort of skill sets would become required if we did that all the time. Like who really needs who really needs educational assessment to work? 
you know, the top 10% of suburban kids with income, with a family income over $200,000 or the bottom 90 with income under 25, right? Who needs it the most, right? Who desperately needs it to work? And does your product work? I even think the, the idea, the responsibility that you'd mention that the folks that you are researching are trusting you to bring their story back. I mean, that just, that just hits a whole different element of humanizing the work that we do, right? And it's hard to do it alone, which I've done for the most part. I've had support from management and, you know, grateful for that support. I'm, uh, I'm humbled by that support. But I actually needed everyone to go on my team. I needed every designer on my team to go into inner city schools and observe, right? Observe. Observe the metal detectors that you walk through when you come into the school, right? Observe the police presence. Just observe and understand. All of the external context that yeah. know, that's being taken even before they may even use this tool that you have, right? Yeah. What does your product look more like? The controls that they're being, you know, what does it look like? What is it more similar to, right? Is it similar to their friends and to their teachers or is it more similar to some of the controls that are put around them because they are deemed to be unsafe because they have low income, right? It's one of these things that I don't think folks understand. Like I, I know right. I'm, not a I'm not a fan of Snapchat, but a lot of young black kids are. And I, I was wondering about that because I used to work in the augmented reality space. I was like, why, why is it? And then I, I started looking at some data around young black and brown folks and I found stuff around literacy rates. And I was looking at literacy rates and I was looking at the app and I was looking at the literacy rates and I was looking at the app and I was like, you don't have to read to use this. You don't need to read at all. None of this requires reading or very little reading. So it's usable, right? Where Instagram, there's a EULA you have to read. You have to do all this stuff to post. You have to go through five steps that require you to read at every single step. Snapchat doesn't have any of those partitions. doesn't have any of those walls. You just hold the button and, and go and it's done. The barrier for entry is so low where when you look at what the barrier for entry is to apps like Twitter, which literally require you to read all the time, right? And then you see the types of folks that are on there. Yeah. And that's, that's another form of accessibility, right? It is. I don't know if Snapchat did that on purpose because I, I don't know those dudes at all. But what I know is the thing that the app enables you to do is not have to read. And to yeah. be able to get what well, you, you want to get out. You got to have 20,000. You have to know 20,000 gestures. <laughs> you do. You do have to know 20,000 gestures. But there's lots of evidence that that's how humans speak anyway, was with our hands, right? So there, there's lots yeah. of genetic evidence of that, you know. So I think a lot of, about those things. Like, what are the unseen barriers that you are placing in your product? And, you know, shout out to Kat Holmes, who I think would be an amazing guest for you on this podcast, if you can get her. Shout out to Kat Holmes, because she was the first designer I read from who had really even put, I want to say, what I mean is a face to a name. Sure. I'd seen stuff, but I couldn't name it until I read mm. her book. Right. You know, Annie Jean-Baptiste's book came out after that. And that was very, that was also incredibly helpful. Uh, but Kat's book was the first, was the first book that I read in design that allowed me to put a name to a face. Because I could see it. 
but I, I just couldn't name it. It was so hard for me to name it. And then I read Mismatch and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this, this whole, this whole world is mismatched for me. None of this yeah. is for me. Like none of this is made mm. for me. I've had to, I've had to shape and shift myself to match this world and not vice versa. And there's aspects of myself because I've had to shape and bend myself. I had to leave out um, mm. to squeeze myself into this like shape so that people can process me and handle me. I want to dive into that because in one of the spaces and one of the clubhouses, we were kind of talking about, you know, work environments. And one of the things that you're talking about is trying to fit into a culture. One of the discussions that we did get into was around like safety. And I found that to be an extremely profound discussion because it was thinking about safety in regards to looking out for each other. So for listeners that likely weren't in that room, I'd love for you to maybe kind of us a little bit of like your thought into that concept around safety and, and what that means. Um, I think that there's very few safe spaces in business. Like they just don't really exist. Business is about the business. So making money, achieving goals, driving forward towards uh, targets set by executives who are high enough up that they can see the horizon, but not low enough down that they can see the mountains. So safe spaces are hard to come by in any aspect of business. So I just want to state that like off the top. But I think for designers in particular, we're always seen as consultants, exterior, not integral. So we see what happens when business make design integral, like things go well. But for whatever reason, that doesn't happen very often. And I'm not really here to, to break that down. But I think particularly in design, because we have to think about the people who use products, what tends to happen is we have objectives in a roadmap um, and there's no humans in either of those things. And so we're constantly in the space of bringing up, hey, you know, people have to be able to use these features that you're going to ship like come hell or high water. And if they can't, then you actually fail. Success is not shipping features, it's people using them and being able to achieve what you expect them to achieve with them. If you ship a feature and it doesn't achieve that, you failed. That's actually failure. You've just created a more convoluted experience and you will eventually have to take that thing away and redesign it or just take it away so that people can figure out how to get around it. So oftentimes designers are put in situations where they have no power and they have no say in what should be done. And so they're coming outside the process and they're pointing things out. And depending upon your personality style, you can be successful at that or not. If you're not successful at it, at it and you're a UX designer, you become a graphic designer. You just design buttons and ship it. And that's not really what you're trained for. You're trained for much more than that. <laughs> you have a, a higher a higher standard to, to reach and achieve. And so for me, those safe spaces start with you, unfortunately, making yourself unsafe by pointing out things. And so one of the things I had to do to start to create safe spaces for people to say something was step up. And I flat out said our experiences, I flat out call experiences racist. I have like no, no punches pulled. People have been <laughs> in <laughs> meetings where I have done this. I've called out executives for not understanding what negative and dark patterns do to the human mind, particularly to children. I have 
gone there every every single time the road was there to travel i have traveled it and what that did was i made myself unsafe and when i when i said those things i was i was expecting to be reprimanded for saying those things i just want to call i just want to say that i was expecting to be reprimanded for saying those things that is not what happened i was actually people actually were like applauding it and going with it and i was like wow that's not what i was expecting and so when people saw that that was the reaction from the business side our executive suite uh, to be specific they also started to say things so what i thought was an unsafe space became a, wasn't an unsafe space it was actually a safe space and then it expanded because i was willing to step in and do that but that's what it feels like it feels like the matrix jumping off of a building right that's what it feels like it's like there's a bit of un- uncomfortableness that comes with moving into what you're saying right it almost it almost yeah. feels like the opposite of what you're trying to achieve, right? Because you're saying, look, we need to provide accountability on these outcomes. And for us, we have to be responsible if things aren't working and we can't move in this realm of just being happy just because we we shipped it, right? And honestly, I'd probably say that's still a really strong narrative in the product development world, right? Like, have you shipped it? What have you shipped? And so... How are, how are companies going to be able to kind of navigate from this? That's a, that's a big rock to move. I, I, think it, I think it involves listening to designers, but I also think it involves listening to diverse sets of designers. So I think that initially companies are going to have to be creative. You're going to have to go and find people that have transferable skills like I had. I come from sports. I'm not scared to say anything. I've been in locker rooms. I've been cussed out by everybody. I have cussed people out. I've gotten in arguments with teammates and coaches. That is... It is brutal. Like high level sports, people are not allowed to have feelings. You have to achieve something and there is no choice other than to achieve or fail. There is no middle ground. And so because of that, there's a, a bluntness and an urgency and a, and a passion that comes with being in those spaces. you got to love that life. And I bring that, I bring that energy into my company, not in a toxic way, but in a way that is like, hey, I'm here to get things done. I know you're here to get things done. What can I move for you so that you can get that done? Or what do you need me to move? What do you need me to do to build a bridge for you to get that done? I'm all about aggressive collaboration and teamwork. And, you know, some of that involves telling people that they're worthy. You'd be stunned. You would be absolutely stunned by how many times I've been talking to someone. I'd be like, I just like stopped and just be like, yo, you know what? Like, you're good. Like you're like, I've sat there. I've stopped whole conversations to tell people that they're worthy and that they're doing a great job and that the problems that we're having with X, Y, and Z feature is not their fault. We have other issues. We have technological issues. We have all these other issues that we need to solve. This is not your fault. You are trying to solve a very difficult problem. And I just want to call out that this is a difficult problem and we're here to help you. What can we do? Let's just reframe this conversation. What do you need help with? How can I help? Right. And it's that servanthood. It's that idea that to lead, you must serve. To achieve, you have to do it together. There is no individual success. There is not me. There is we, right? For a Black person, (laughs) the only Black person, there's a lot that I have to be accepting of in order to move progress forward on behalf of children. So I feel like for me, it's been a lot of humility, actually, in moving forward putting aside offenses or things that have happened that were not positive and then moving forward together. 
because it's not about me. It's about our users. It's about the humans. I, I actually won't hate that word users because it sounds like they're on drugs. Our humans, right? It's about the humans that we serve, all of them, right? All spectrums. If they need your product, they're going to figure out how to use it. How do you make it easy enough for some anyone to use it, right? What can you do with low bandwidth in low bandwidth situations to make your product operate better? What can you do? Because everybody's suffering with low bandwidth because everybody's on the internet now. It's solving those problems, green server farms, all of that, right? I, I, I you know, some people think renewable energy is a pipe dream, and it, it might be, but it's a pipe dream worth having. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, you have to it, dream it's a, big, right? You got it. You got to go for it, right? Oftentimes, like whatever, shoot for the shoot for the stars, and you'll land on the moon. You know, you know, whatever. Shoot, for, like I, I don't know. Like you, there's all these, there's all these, like sort of like sayings, hyperbolic, <laughs> yeah, sayings. Like you yeah. know, I was aiming for the stars, and I landed on the moon. Right? <laughs> you know, like there's like and, like there's <laughs> it's all, there's all that stuff, and it's 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 there for a reason. Those those concepts are, although cheesily put very accurate aim high right aim high that's what's on for folks that are listening that's that's exactly what's on his back wall there's papers posted he has aim for the moon Um, (laughs) well chris hey man thank you so much i'm glad we got we didn't have i feel like we need like another hour for this because there's so much more i want to get into but how can our listeners get in touch how can they follow you are there any things that you're working on that you're going to share with the world this year, let us know. Yeah, I will. Um, I'm at Chris V Toms on all platforms, LinkedIn, Twitter, not Facebook, Instagram, which is still Facebook. Um, Meta. It's Meta. 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 Sorry. Sorry. Meta. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I'm Chris V Toms everywhere. And you can reach out to me on any of those platforms and I'll get back to you. I am in the process of making a website that will have resources and links to things that I have already created that are sitting on my computer waiting to be sent out into the world. So yeah, you can follow me there. Thanks. You got, you, you got it. You got to, you got to follow Chris on the Twitter. We moved from the clubhouse. Now he's on the spaces. Yeah. By the way, which do you like, which one do you like better? Do you like clubhouse or do you like spaces? I got nostalgia with clubhouse. Clubhouse got me through the yeah. worst part of the pandemic. I mean, the worst part. Yeah. And now it's turned into like a bunch yeah. of weird radio dating. But outside of that, <laughs> moan nostalgia's yeah, the, yeah. The whale moan room was fire. Like that was fire. I was like, well, I didn't know that people could do that. Yeah. And like the, I don't know if you went to the Dragon Ball Z. Oh no, I didn't. Oh man, that was so good. So like, so stuff like that. <laughs> nostalgia. There's yeah. like great nostalgia there. There was actually one about, I think it was uh, Asian parents saying affirming words to young to oh, the yeah. children. Oh yeah. my God, that was powerful. Like there were some things that happened there that were like catching lightning in a bottle that were just unbelievable. So I have great vibes from Clubhouse and I said a lot of things on Clubhouse and I got to say those things to people who are industry leaders, particularly about gatekeeping. We went in on gatekeeping and I think that was really powerful. I think we shifted a lot of recruiters' perspectives on how they were doing things, why they were struggling to get diverse applicants, because their criteria for finding applicants aren't diverse. <laughs> so, so yeah, nostalgia. 
I'm still on Clubhouse. I at Crispy Tom's there as well. Yeah, you're such a powerful voice on the Clubhouse. So, you know, I track and see sort of how people are doing on the internet. And you've gotten a pretty big following on Twitter and on the LinkedIn. And I really do think, because you don't have a website, it's mostly been from Clubhouse. <laughs> it is. It's definitely based on Clubhouse. Yeah. Clubhouse was fire, man. It made people's careers. It made lives. So... Yeah, man. I, I miss those early days getting in on that. But, you know, we at least we have this. We have this. So have this. this is sort of the another another flavor of it. Um, yep. But again, thank you so much and, and best of luck with everything and looking forward to more of the amazing conversations and thought provoking, you know, ideas that you have that that can really inspire our industry. So thank you again.